powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you, everyone, so much for coming. Thank you, Sid. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. Before I want to jump into the episode, I want to say a huge thank you to my last guest, Dr. Ephraim Zuroff. What a truly incredible man, and there is still a part of my brain that is still in disbelief that I got the chief Nazi hunter in the world onto this show. The feedback was immense, and Dr. Zuroff was so incredibly generous with his time, and I will forever be grateful. Okay, guess what today is? Well, it's Groundhog Day, again, and that must mean that we're up here at Gobbler's Knob, waiting for the forecast from the world's most famous groundhog weatherman, Punxsutawney Phil, who's just about to tell us how much more winter we can expect. All right, so welcome to episode 123. With that in mind, we've got a great episode in store for you today. We have on the show one of stage and screen's most versatile actors. We have Stephen Tobolowski. He is going to be talking about how he got started in acting. will take us through a selected few past film and TV projects, including The West Wing and The Goldbergs, working with Stephen Frears, and also working with the legendary Hal Ramis. And, of course, we'll be talking about how Stephen portrayed Ned Ryerson in the dark comedy Groundhog Day. Lots to cover, so let's get Stephen out here. Duval Nation, please rise to your feet, and welcome to the show, the incomparable Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, hello. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. This is indeed a real honor for me. How are you? I am very fine, Derek. Very fine. Good. I start my interviews off like any other, and that is, how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 world that we're living in right now? Wow. I had a costume fitting today for a rare job because, you know, the work dried up so much with COVID. And she said, how have you been navigating? And the first part of the pandemic I found was navigatable with something called dark gin. Mm. It, it was from Finland and it was fantastic. And you, you could drink it and never get drunk and you didn't worry about anything in the world. Well, that ended after about three months. <laughs> the, the magic of the dark gin vanished. Uh, I've, I've been lucky in that I've had a lot of projects to work on. Mm-hmm. And, and this is what I realized, Derek, out of everything, is the reason we need people is because we need mirrors. In life, a mirror and a mirror. A mirror is the other person when you talk to them, when you're doing a play and you have the feedback from the play. This whole thing with the Zoom plays, I I mean, awful. When and, and it was the only thing we could do. So I did several Zoom plays. Terrible. I've 
when I go to the theater, when I went to the theater, when it was really theater and the lights went down, people watched the show. They didn't scroll through their iPhones mm. for mail or, or tweets or whatever. But when you watch a Zoom play and you watch people watching it, they're just doing whatever they're doing, their taxes or whatever. You, it Art has vanished. So um, I guess the main thing I've done that was surprising is my son and his wife gave us a COVID baby. Aww. Yeah, And so Annie and I became grandparents. And it has been the most blissful experience of my life. No one warned me how fantastic being a grandfather or grandmother would be. And so we spend every, he lives, you know, five minutes from here, Mm -hmm. doesn't live across the country. And so we babysit for them every day. And that's gotten me through COVID. Horrible, horrible thing. Outstanding. So every journey has a beginning. And yours is, what was it like growing up in Dallas, Texas? Oh boy. It's, it's a mixture of the horrible and absolute sublime. We, we lived in an area called Oak cliff Mm -hmm. and I didn't know it at the time, but it was what you call a white flight area. I don't know if there are any laws against black people living in our area, but black people did not live in our area. It was not acceptable, not condoned. I didn't know anything about it. We grew up very close to a Creek and woods And I used to spend all of my days with my friends looking for snakes and and spiders and lizards. It was like a Tom Sawyer kind of existence. It was absolutely fantastic. We we had a black maid, Lenora, and down the street, Alice, now Alan, who was a girl I proposed to when I was six years old. (laughs) And I remember I came back and told mom, I'm getting married. I'm marrying Alice now. Mom was cleaning the chicken in the sink. Oh, that's nice, honey. Yeah, so I'll probably be moving out and starting a family of my own soon. That's nice, sweetheart. So anyway, Alice had a black maid too, Claudie. And then my father had a black custodian, Thomas. And these three people were three of the most remarkable people I've ever met in my life. I didn't know it now, but now at the age of 71, I look back, Lenora, brilliant, funny, uh, loving, uh, caring, animated, full of energy. She ended up becoming, uh, while she wasn't babysitting and taking care of our house, she sold Avon products door to door and she was good and she got promoted and promoted. She ended up a regional manager of Avon, ended up a multimillionaire. She came back and said, to us, we would like to buy your house because I always wanted to buy the house I worked in. Mm. And so my father and mother sold Lenora our house and she bought every stick of furniture in it because she wanted it exactly the same. And then she wrote me not too long before the pandemic, maybe a couple years before the pandemic. She said, Stevie, you'd be very proud of your home. We've turned it into a church. And we've saved a lot of souls there. Oh, that's our Lenora down the street. Alice Nell Allen. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but Alice was being brutalized and abused by her parents. Mm. Her mother would come in at night with a gun and stick it in her face and saying, say your prayers. This is the, and this was in our neighborhood. We had no idea. This is the last day you're going to be alive. And Claudie, the maid, saw this happening 
And instead of going home at the end of the workday, she stayed in Alice's room. And when her parents came to beat up on Alice, Claudie stood in between Alice's mother and father and Alice and said, you come one step forward to touch this child and you're going to have to deal with me. And Claudie protected Alice until Alice was old enough to get out of the house. I think it was about 16, Alice left. Mm. And she never, never, never saw her parents again. And she turned around and became a nurse. And with the money she made, she paid for all of Claudie's medical expenses. She was at Claudie's graveside when she died. And she said, this was my true mother. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was like growing up in this and, Th and Thomas, my father's custodian, a man of, like they would say in Hamlet, infinite jests, kind, courteous, gentle, funny, uh, delightful, caring man. And I said, when I grow up, Thomas, I want to live in Thomastown. And he said, no, Stevie, you don't. You don't want to live where I live. You don't want to live in Thomastown. You're going to live in Stevie Town. <laughs> and I did. I followed his advice. I said, whatever happens, I'm going to live in Stevie Town. So I decided I'd become an actor. So in, in all of that awfulness of Oak Cliff with, with bigotry and meanness, there were some magnificent people too. And the plans of men to create racial separation, in my case, created the opposite in that I felt these people were the most magnificent people I ever knew. <laughs> you know, gosh, thank goodness they're black people, you know, because now we have nobility in our country. And because everybody else I met were, were pretty vicious. So I decided I got sick early on. I got very sick on my, I think when I was turning 12 to 13, I got very sick. And so I couldn't play anymore. And I had to, at school, I had to, couldn't go to gym, had to go to study halls. So I spent my school day at like four different study halls. I mean, that's what I really need school for. But it was there because I couldn't do anything. I started reading plays mm. in study hall. And then I could be in speech and debate. And so when they had the people from the high school come over to push speech and debate and drama, I thought, oh, this is interesting. So my catastrophe of being ill for about three years from about 12 to 15, and then it just stopped. Mm -hmm. I went to a doctor and he gave me a new medication, which is outlaw, which is not accepted in the United States anymore. Mm -hmm. It was an anti-seizure medicine for people with epilepsy, but he gave it to me uh, because I've had a lot of internal bleeding. It was, I couldn't eat anything. I lost a lot of weight, had no energy, but I could read plays and I started being interested in drama. And not only was I fascinated with plays, loved it, but the girls were pretty too. <laughs> and, and I thought this is, this may be where I want to stay. And so I ended up in high school, just doing drama and debate nonstop. And that kind of framed me for the rest of my life. 
You know, it's funny. Uh, I had a similar path happen to me in my last two years of high school where I could no longer play athletics and I was enlisted. They said, why don't you try speech and debate and what have you? And uh, I did that. And of course, then that led into drama and so forth. So I understand. Yeah, it's it's one door closes, another one opens. That's right. That's Especially right. in places you never believe to look. So you, yeah. and, and and it's it's also just like Tulsa. I consider a cultural center for anyone who's not been there. They think Tulsa is Hicksville, but Mm. when you've been there, you know, Tulsa is a cultural center of our country. And what you wouldn't know about Dallas is it was a cultural center too. It had, uh, the Dallas theater center, which was world renowned. Uh, Paul Baker, uh, created a company there and people came from all over, but it wasn't an equity theater. So the only other theater they had in Dallas was Theater 3, which was an equity theater, as long as you gave your money back to the theater after they paid you. Mm-hmm. You you had to hand the check back over to them. And then the dinner theaters, Granny's Dinner Theater and all, all those, you know. But Dallas had great art, great culture. Fort Worth down the road had magnificent ballet, opera, and art galleries. So there was enough culture for people who sought it out. Mm. Do you have any fun memories from the university of Illinois? Oh, yeah, I have, I've, I have a lot of fun, <laughs> me- <laughs> a lot of fun memories from the university of Illinois. I have a lot of fun memories. I remember, uh, here's a good one. My girlfriend at the time was Beth and, uh, I met Beth when I was a sophomore at SMU and she was a freshman. I just fell in love with her at first sight. And uh, by the time we graduated, I was a big wheel in Dallas theater. I was the young ingenue, you know, and I played Algernon in Importance of Being Earnest. I, 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 Jesus and Godspell. I was playing all these roles, getting, you know, and Beth was still getting nothing. You know, she occasionally got a role because, you know, there were directors who, wanted me in the show and they put her in the show too. And we went to the university of Illinois because it was the only school that would accept both of us. I wanted to go to LA or New York immediately and start my acting career, but Beth was nowheresville. So we went to the university of Illinois. Beth was cute and sweet and little. So she would always get cast as a child. I think when we got there, she got cast as the little girl and skin of our teeth. So she enrolled in a playwriting class because they only had one student in playwriting. And it was a woman, Claudia Riley. And so Claudia in a school of 30,000 people, one playwriting student. So Beth thought it was very interesting. She had admired Claudia for her. And we, the two of us acted in a reading of Claudia's play and walking home across the campus, University of Illinois, Beth said, you know, I think I'm not going to be an actress. I think I'm going to be a writer instead. And I'm going like, yeah, (laughs) whatever, (laughs) you know, you roll the dice, whatever, baby, whatever's good for you. So the first full-length play she wrote won the Pulitzer Prize for drama, <laughs> Crimes of the Heart. And uh, I went like, and I remember we were only in Illinois one year because I thought I needed a graduate degree like I needed a hole in my head. 
you know, to be an actor, you got to act. If you're going to teach acting, yes, you need a master's, you need a PhD. But if you want to act, you just got to do it. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, well, well, that that was one wondrous memory of, of University of Illinois. Another amazing memory of University of Illinois is, I'll keep on topic, is uh, I love doing clothes. I loved washing clothes, and they had a place called Doodads uh, right off campus. And the reason I like washing clothes is I like to watch the people in the laundromat because they were completely unaware of anyone watching them, nor did they care. They weren't looking their best. They didn't care about anything. So I remember I put all of our laundry into seven washers and dryers. And Beth loved this about me, that I love doing the wash and drying. And Mr. Roberts, the the aged weatherman who was on the news, was saying, well, these seven tornadoes which are coming down on Champaign-Urbana area, you should be prepared to go to, <laughs> to, go to a facility to get underground within the next 20 minutes. And I'm going like, what? It's like living in Tulsa. I'm going, wait, wait, (laughs) underground? Did someone, when we came here to the school, did someone say there's an underground place we could go? I didn't know. My clothes were on the wash cycle. I'm going (laughs) like, what the hell are we going to do? So I'm taking all the wet clothes out. I'm assuming that what he said is true. I put all the wet clothes in the trunk of my car, sudsy wet clothes, seven washers full. I go back and where's Beth? How am I going to find Beth? Are we both going to die here? We get back, and as I'm driving to our apartment, you start getting the whole thing happening. The low clouds, first turning to blue, then to gray, then to green. And you go like, this is bad. I get out of the car. I run upstairs. Beth's watching TV, and she says, what are we going to do? We have no place to go. I run outside and lie in the curb, like on the street. Beth comes down and says, you can't lie down there. You'll get you'll get run over by a car. I said, but it's safer if it's a tornado, if you're below the surface of the ground. I have a concrete. She says, get out. So then I climbed <laughs> under our car. And she says, the car is going to be lifted up and thrown on you. You're not this. And this. So we're running around. The TV said the tornado was going to hit in 15 minutes. We go up to the our, our little bedroom, climb in the bathtub. Uh, we hug each other tight and we're going like, well, it was, it was a sweet life. And she said, let's go out, let's go outside and watch it come. So I thought, okay. So I went out on the ledge, watched nothing happen. <laughs> we heard the sound of rail uh, train cars. <laughs> we heard the sound of exploding uh, electrical boxes and terminals, but then nothing nothing. And we went back in and they said, because Champaign-Urbana was built on a swamp and tornadoes seek higher ground, that the seven tornadoes split around Champaign-Urbana, sparing our lives, and they all hit Homer, Illinois, which was the closest high ground around us. And the town of Homer, Illinois was wiped off the face of the earth. Wow. That's that's incredible. I have one more short Illinois story. Go for it. This is short Illinois story. I was in dance class then. I wanted to be thought an actor had to sing, dance, act, and do fencing. 
So I took fencing classes. Yeah, that's come in real handy. And uh, <laughs> dance classes, that's come in real handy. And it w- so our assignment was to choreograph our own modern dance. So I loved art dance teacher blake atherton and she always wore this little blue leotard and she was so cute she she was only probably about five feet tall five feet one i'm six three something like but she was a babette for sure so i'm doing my dance last time on the floor i do these leaps which i'm not good at and (laughs) then i land on my last leap and i hear this crack this amazingly horrible loud, awful crack. And I look down and my big toe is pointed up at me and bent backwards. And I like scream and I cover my hand over my foot so no one could see. And I hop on one leg to the men's bathroom and start putting cold water on my foot. And Blake comes running in to the men's bathroom and says, what happened, Stephen? What happened? And she comes down, says, pull your hands away. She sees my toe And she said, we're going to the hospital. She picks me up in her arms. She's five feet tall. I'm six feet. And she starts running down the hallways of the University of Illinois, Cranard Center, the drama, the arts and drums, runs down the hallway with me, runs out of the building, across the field, into the parking lot, puts me into the front seat of her Volkswagen bug (laughs) and drives me to the hospital and sits there and waits for me until the doctor comes to take me back and put a cast on my foot. Later on that night, Blake came to my room, my apartment where Beth and I lived and Beth was working on some show then or not. So I was just there alone and there was a knock at the door and it was Blake with hot soup. Aww. And she said, I thought you may want this. And she said, Stephen, uh, I hope you consider taking dance next year. Uh, And I said, well, Blake, Beth and I are leaving. We're not staying at U of I. And she said, well, then this is goodbye. And so I said goodbye to Blake. And then in 2000, so that was 1976, 76. In the year 2001, I did a play on Broadway, Mornings at Seven, and we got all sorts of Tony nominations and everything. And then I got a little message saying that someone is here to see me. She drove down from upstate New York. Blake Atherton did a three-hour car drive to see the play, and she wanted to know if she could see me after the show. And I did see Blake after the show, and I remember what Harold Ramis told me when I did Groundhog Day. He says, Stephen, it's impossible to become an actor. No one can do it without four heroes. The thing is, we don't know who the heroes are. We don't know where they'll come from. But Blake Atherton was one of my four heroes. And I think Harold Ramis was one of mine, too. (laughs) I didn't tell him that. Do you remember your first payroll? Oh, God. I remember uh, the first payroll I got, I got $100 a day. I don't know if this is the first. It's one of the first. I, I did I did some things for KERA TV in which I got $25 a show. And, and that was educational TV. 
So I was like the narrator of this educational series. And I did 25 of those and I got to check $25 per show, which I thought, man, this gets you a lot of fried chicken. This is like <laughs> fantastic. And what was really hilarious was that when I went to Jackson, Mississippi to Beth's home to visit with her family, her youngest sister came up, oh my God, you're the man who's on our TV. <laughs> so they used that, the show I did. And so I was a big man on campus with Beth's family because I was actually an actor on TV for a little KO. Uh, the first SAG job I did was in Dallas, Texas to keep my grave open. And I think I made a hundred dollars a day for that movie. And I worked something like five days on it. So it was amazing. And, uh, keep my grave open should be the first thing on my IMDB. Mm. Uh, that was, that was incredibly awesome. So, so <laughs> we didn't have dressing rooms. We didn't have anything for that. We were just sitting out in a barn all night shooting, but we loved it. Cause man, we were working actors. So those would be my first two, uh, in LA, uh, probably my first one was, I think Washington's a friend of mine, Tom Calloway was playing the lead in Washington's. And it, it was on a PBS channel or something. Didn't have much viewership. And he asked me if I wanted to play uh, a one-page kind of part on there. So I did. And so that was probably my first real job in L.A. was that one day on Washington's. Mm. So your IMDb credits list you over 200 different films, shows. Yeah. Yeah. Do you prefer television or do you prefer feature films? It's a whole different thing. And and theater is a different thing, too. Mm -hmm. And probably the most uh, satisfying as an actor, of course, is doing theater. Uh, you rehearse it for if you, I mean, it, this is if you're doing it professionally, you rehearse it like four weeks. If you're on Broadway, you rehearse it eight to 10 weeks. So you really get this camaraderie with the cast. You really feel like you're in the skin of these parts and you don't make that much money. You know, even on Broadway, I think I made like fifteen hundred a week or something. Three, and then they we got a, a raise to three thousand a week, but that still isn't a lot of money if you're living in New York and you're living in Los Angeles at the same time. Mm. You 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 owe a lot of bills, and 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 so that wasn't a ton. The next is you have a film, which you get a long rehearsal time usually. You, you get a, like today, I just came back from Casa Man, new film I'm going to be working on. We have rehearsal uh, next week and we have time with the script and time to learn our lines. And you don't always make a lot of money doing films, but you make more money doing films than you do doing theater. Right. And so, and you do have a chance on some of these films I've done, like Great Balls of Fire and things like that, where I'm working in one place for three months to develop a real camaraderie with the cast. And we know then there's TV TV. A lot of times you don't see the script. You have no time to rehearse. You have to be able to come up with stuff on the spot. Uh, a lot of times now they don't even care if you don't know your lines. 
because they have cameras now with a chip and not film. See, when it was film, do you know how much the longest time you could film with a film camera was? Mm. 11 minutes. Mm. So after 11 minutes, you have to go cut. We have to reload. Everybody waits. They reload the camera. Now, like doing the Goldbergs, they have a chip. And that chip, at least on the Goldbergs, the last one they had was 55 minutes. 55 mm. minutes of nonstop shooting. So if if you're playing a principal or, or whatever, and you have a speech and you don't know your lines because you just got the script that morning at six o'clock, you go, students of William Penn High School, line, <laughs> then they feed you. It is such a great moment to be here with you today, line. And, and they just cut out the line and they stick the whole thing together and they run the camera forever. You, it's, it's, I've been doing Goldberg's for about, I want to say eight years or so. And mm -hmm. so there is a camaraderie that develops with the cast doing that. And TV pays you the best because it is the most stressful. It is the hardest work on an actor. You usually have 6 a.m. calls. Uh, you usually work 13 hours a day, uh, which means you're up in the fours, you know, going, you have no sleep. You don't have time to study. So you have to be very quick and, uh, TV just chews you up and spits you out, but at least it will pay the rent. I've had many actors on the show uh, previous to you, and some of them have actually done theater work. And we were going to talk about theater work a little later on in this uh, interview. But since you brought it up now, um, they truly, they think it's like the ultimate test to their craft. You know, you, like you said, you, you, you return, you have a rehearsal and you're putting it out there. And if you make a mistake, a mistake can be very unforgiving. So, you know, like I said, I totally admire that. Yeah. And, and, there is nothing, nothing, nothing like the feeling of being in front of a live audience. If you're an actor, you, you know, you feel everything from the audience, especially like if you're on Broadway and you have like 2000 people in the audience, the feeling on stage is palpable, you know, and it, it's overwhelming really when you first feel it, if you're used to doing small, small plays and small theaters, uh, it is, but you do have time. Mm. You do have time to learn your part, which, you know, and I would say each of the types of acting and voiceover too mm. is a unique skill that everybody thinks, well, I could do voiceover because I have a voice and it's not true. You, you see these, like when I work with Pam Adlon on Californication, Pam Adlon is the queen of voiceover. She is one of the geniuses of voiceover. And she could play so many characters. Uh, her voice is so uh, flexible and she knows comedy and timing and pacing. It's, it's an amazing art. All these things require amazing specialized skills, I think. Mm. So I told folks that you were coming on the show and some of them sending questions for me to ask you. Yes, sir. Uh, before we get to Ned Ryerson, there is one thing. A lot of them actually had like different roles that you had played. But the one that stood out to me, and it was actually numerous people who sent this one in, is what was it like to work on this film called Hero? Chevy Chase. The film with Dustin Hoffman. I worked with Stephen Frears, who was the director of that on, uh, the I believe, was it The Grifters? 
I, I think that was the first film I did with Stephen. And, and he's a brilliant director from England. Uh, he did The Queen. Mm-hmm. And so you know you're in the hands of, of someone great as that director. We did one shot on Hero. I remember I just done Thelma and Louise. Mm-hmm. And so Gina Davis, who's also in Hero, uh, she said, I'm coming with you first day of shooting to root you on. And mm-hmm. Gina came over and sat there with me, came with me in my dressing room, was there and and just was like, oh, that was great. You know, she's, God, what a woman. Oh, what a wonderful person. Uh, just so wonderful. So I had a, I loved it. I had a spectacular time because I, I love the people I was working with. Stephen Frears is an artist of the first order. And, you know, I didn't have a huge responsibility in, in that movie. You, you know, I didn't have, a, you know, I had a role that was somewhat comical. I didn't have any scenes with Dustin. I didn't have any scenes with Andy Garcia. Mainly it was all with Chevy Chase, who we had a good, we had a very good time. And, and later on, uh, when I worked on, uh, what was, uh, the school, oh, I'll, it'll come to me later. Um, those, I, I saw Chevy again and that was so fantastic. So we did develop a camaraderie on that. I think it all comes from the head, from the director and, uh, yeah, I wish I'd worked with Dustin, but I'd worked with him on some other things, uh, in the past. So it's a very underappreciated film. Uh, you don't hear it very much, but I think it's an absolute gem of a film. And that's why what people were sending me this question, like, really, I, other people found this as interesting as I did. So it, it's an amazing film because, yeah. and, and if you look at it in terms of storybook kind of film where you have one person who appears to be the hero and the other person who is the real hero Mm -hmm. and what society, who they will elevate to be the hero, not, not the, you know, the person who looks the part rather than person who is the part. Right. Uh, But it was, it was terrific script. Okay. Deval nation. We're going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we'll be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Stephen Tobolowsky. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long, deep breaths. You know, Clouseau style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Please give your attention to a few friends of the show, and we will be right back. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated, and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podtastic Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is Podcasting Made Easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podtasticaudio.com slash easy. Hey, it's Presley Tennant, and you're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can find my brand new EP, 600 Miles, on all streaming platforms right now. Yeah, I want to take that three-mile drive straight to my house in the back of 
guess it's hard to hear a heartbreak 600 miles away. Duval Nation, Derek and Mindy Duval here to talk about Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. The Derek Duval Show and Derek and Mindy's Fun with Movies is proud to be sponsored by the team at Jerky Pro. As a veteran, I am always the first to support veteran-owned businesses. Setting up shop in 1987 and founded by military and paramilitary veterans, they have set the bar for how beef jerky is processed, flavored, packaged, and sold. With strict quality control standards, Jerky Pro offers many flavors that are sure to please any beef jerky connoisseur. From the standard original flavor to honey glazed, peppered, teriyaki, sweet barbecue, or if you're brave enough, the fierce red hot, there are many flavors guaranteed to entice your palate. Offered in various sized packaging, use promo code DUBALL37, all in capital letters, at checkout to receive a 5% discount. Remember, folks, if your beef jerky is not making your mouth water, then it's not Jerky Pro Beef Jerky. Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And together we are the Spy Hearts Podcast. Every Tuesday, we decode the best and the worst of spy cinema to decipher if they make the knock list. That's right. The knock list is the need to see official classics of the spy genre. The best of the best, so to speak. Nobody does it better. From Bourne to Bond and Powers to Palmer, you can bet we will cover it. So subscribe now and revel in the audio equivalent of a smooth martini. Just search for Spy Hards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on all major podcast apps. And let's just hope you find us before we find you. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts. Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Hey, this is Patrick Baker, and you are listening to The Derek Duvall Show. Check out my new single, Sorrow, available on all major streaming platforms. And you can check my site out at patrickbakermusic.com. Don't leave my upper heart alone on the water. Cover me in ragging bones. Janae Sergio, arriving. Hello everyone, this is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, a veteran's journey from homeless to hero. 
In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 123 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with master thespian Stephen Tobolowski. So we have three Groundhog Day questions, and we'll move on from it because there's other stuff that are okay. just as interesting. Uh, the first question is, do people stop you in the middle of the street and just throw Groundhog Day lines at you? Today, I was going to pick up these glasses <laughs> from the optometrist and driving down Ventura Boulevard, someone yelled out, hey, Ned. <laughs> uh, I was in Edinburgh, Scotland. Someone goes, it's Stu Beggs and Ned. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's like uh, the one good thing about the pandemic, wearing the mask, is I don't get it in the grocery store every day. Mm. I mean, my my favorite Ned Ned moment was I uh, I like to play the piano. And so in like 1995, I saw in Piano Magazine, Alfred Brindell great, great concert. Pianist was doing a master class at Carnegie Hall in the Beethoven Sonatas, which I was trying to play a couple of those. So I said to my wife, can I go to Carnegie Hall and take this class? It was $195, but I'd have to be gone for a week. And Annie said, sure. So on the form, you had to fill out what symphonies you had played with and who your teachers were. And I wrote like, I don't play that well, but I love Alfred Brindell and I'm in movies. And so they took me. And so I went for a week. I'm sitting next to Maduri. I'm sitting next to Ivany Knissen, all of these great, great, great musicians. Everybody's asking me, well, what are you working on now? And, <laughs> you know, thinking I'm a pianist of some sort. At the end of the whole thing, we go to Carnegie Hall and Alfred Brindell is playing uh, Beethoven sonatas. We sit on the first row and the whole place is full. And then the people who are students of the class get to go back one by one and meet Alfred Brindell. So I get to go back and Alfred was there and he goes, oh my gosh, are you Ned? <laughs> and I go, yes, I'm Ned. He says, I, why are you taking this class? I said, because I always wanted to be a pianist, but I never had the courage to play in front of people. He says, I always wanted to be an actor, but I never had the courage to do it in front of people. I could play the piano in front of anyone. He says, I love that movie. That's so great. yes, people still all the time say mm. Bing. You know, it's funny. I mean, an actor always wonders about getting typecast in a role and such like Harrison Ford had two roles that he is famous for. Yes. Do is that do people come up to you and just like, you know, you inspired me to become an actor or anything like that? Do you get that? Yeah, people do that. You know, you inspired me to be an actor or I wanted to be in funny movies or I wanted to do this, that, and the other. The the thing that you have to do if you get typecast, which everybody does because that's what this business is based on, is finding a commodity which you're good at and selling that commodity is you have to get lucky and get another role that's very different. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had Groundhog Day, and I'd done a lot of other things before that that were 
fun, you know, great balls of fire and all things like that that were fun. But Groundhog Day is like, you know, not bragging about it, but it's one of the best comedies ever made. Yeah. I mean, Harold Ramis did a magnificent job. Danny Rubin, the writer, John Bailey, cinematographer. I mean, it's an amazing team. It's a great film. Yeah. And, uh, but you, you know, when I came back after that, everybody wanted to cast me in the same type of role, mm-hmm. you know, wacky role. And that will wear thin, you, you know, and it, you know, frankly, it took, uh, doing memento. I'm, I'm wanting to think doing memento, uh, Chris Nolan, which was completely different kind of movie. And that movie, when it came out, was the number one independent film of all time. Mm-hmm. It was later beat out by my favorite, my big Greek wedding. But at that time, everybody was seeing Memento, and then people wanted me for different kinds of parts. And then Californication, again, was a completely different kind of part for me. And so I was lucky in that I had, and Silicon Valley, completely different kind of part for me. Uh, there's some mm-hmm. sort of bug in front of me. So it's it's like you have to be lucky and get people who want to give you a try doing something completely different mm. so i'm sure you're asked to the end of time what it was like to work with bill murray so i'm not going to do that i'm asking to ask you a better question and you mentioned him earlier what are your favorite memories working with someone that i consider to be a personal hero of mine what were your favorite memories working with harold ramus oh god working with harold ramus was he is one of my heroes and it was magnificent as a director, funny, lighthearted, excellent, got work done. He taught me so much about directing and about comedy and comedy and film. And one of the big things that I, I tell people that Harold Ramis taught me on that film, I, I remember Bill and I were doing the street scene at the beginning, first day of shooting, we start shooting the street scene. Oh, fail. And I came up to Harold Ramis after a few times down the street. I said, am I too big? You know, I feel like you could see me in the Roman Coliseum. And he goes, Stephen, in a comedy scene, you have two people. You have the Shlemiel and the Shlemazel. <laughs> you know, Jewish theater, the Shlemiel is the guy who spills the soup. The schlamazel is the guy who gets the soup spilled on him. Translating that any comedy scene, you have to have who you are the schlemiel. Bill is the schlamazel. In modern terms, in comedy, you have to have one person who carries the world and another person who is an aberrant element of that world. So in your scene, Bill has to carry the world. He has to be the straight guy. You could do whatever you want. You could be as big as you want. You could be nuts, be crazy. Bill has to hold the fort. He says the tragedy in comedy is the people who are the world, the schlamazel, playing it straight. They think they have to do something funny, and they don't to be funny. They have to do what Bill Murray did in that. And you notice one of the genius things of Bill Murray in that movie is that he wasn't the schlamazel in all the scenes. Right after he's with me, he goes to the diner, and Andy and Chris, they're the schlamazels, and Bill is the schlamiel drinking the coffee, and he's <laughs> stuffing all the food in his mouth. 
Bill can be as big as he wants there, but they have to be real. So for all the actors out there who are listening, you have to look at a scene and see, are you the world? Or are you the aberrant factor of the world? And consequently, you have to follow those rules. And that's what Harold Ramis taught me. The couple of, well, about two years ago now, I had the documentarians who did the Ghostbusters documentary came on my show. And one of the questions we brought up was, of course, they did it years ago before Harold had sadly passed. And they said that he was the most generous, most friendliest, most humble human being you could ever want to meet. And I, I, I love that. He had nothing to prove because he had already had his reputation when we did Groundhog Day. He was a master. And, you know, he wasn't a master in the making. He was a master. And so he could relax because he had all the answers and he was supportive to everybody. He made sure we stayed on time. Uh, he had courage, which a lot of people who are directors or whatever, in the, especially doing a comedy, they, I remember we were shooting that first week, a lot of me and Bill. And then at the end of the week, we had this huge scene. It took like a, a couple days, really, where Bill realizes that he's trapped in time. He has no consequences. And it's him tearing up his room at the end, sawing the furniture in half, uh, buzz cutting his head into a mohawk. It's like he realizes, you know, he realizes he's without consequences, goes nuts in Rex's room. It, it took a, a fortune because not only do you have, if you know film, anything you paint, anything you break, you have to have doubles and triples and quadruples of it for multiple takes. Right. So you had, you had to have all the mirrors, all the beds, all the everything. Uh, Bill's wig cost like 10 grand to turn him into a mohawk. Yet, you know, all this was so expensive to film. And Harold Ramis looked at that footage at the end of the first week. And this is when the studio is looking over your shoulder to say, how are you spending our money? How, what, what kind of movie is this? So we have a lot of nits and, and Harold Ramis threw the scene out, mm. threw the scene out. And he goes back to the drawing board with Danny Rubin and said, what kind of story are we telling? Is this a story about Bill without consequences? Or is this a story about how, we spend our time on the planet earth mm -hmm. and what we're doing is, and so Harold and Danny started rewriting the script. We started getting blue pages at, at that second week, like totally new stuff. And that's what made groundhog day a great movie instead of just a good movie was all the changes Harold Ramis made and not making it just a uh, Bill Murray being wild, crazy guy. There's one last fan question here that uh, everybody wanted to ask is how long has Bill Murray been trapped in that time loop? Yeah. Bill Murray. And I know this from Harold Ramis, 2007, I went to a charity event with Harold Ramis and uh, I asked him and he said, Stephen, 10,000 years. Wow. And I said, 10,000 years. He said, Stephen, I'm a practicing Buddhist. Who knew? And in <laughs> Buddhism, they believe it takes 10,000 years to perfect a human soul. And he said, Stephen, that is the real story of Groundhog Day, the perfection of the human soul. And that is probably why the movie is so damn good. It really is. So as I said before, people send me questions. One of them was, how challenging is it to work or was it to work on Californication? It was uh, 
a delight. And it didn't have to be. You know, it could have been a difficult because we're naked half the time and, mm. you know, all sorts of personal kind of scene, all this kind of stuff. But everybody on that, Tom Caponis, the uh, executive uh, head writer, everything, the directors were so good, just so good. The directors we had, everybody, uh, David Duchovny, and uh, I, I mean, Natasha Mockenroe, she, she was so fantastic. We all had such a good time and all respected one another so much that it was not challenging. I've been on shows that were way challenging, that were much simpler to do than Californication, just because of the difficulties of the people that you're working with. So you only did one episode, um, but I would not do my I would not be doing my job if I did not ask about uh, your part of the legacy of what is known the juggernaut that is the West Wing. Oh, uh, what, yes. What is that experience like? Oh, fantastic. It was great. It was great. The West Wing was fantastic. Again, splendid cast, amazing cast. I knew what I was dealing with with uh, Sorkin is that that right he was the writer of that too. Yes, because yeah, I did two two Sorkin yeah. shows, but. Everything has to be, every, the lines have to be perfect. There's no ad-libbing, there's no nothing. So you really have to be diligent as an actor to work on that show. But I worked with um, a director that I'd worked with many times before on regular sitcoms. And so we knew each other. And so he just kind of said, do anything you want here, <laughs> you know, go go nuts, you know, just in, just enjoy and see if you could make them crack up. And, and so I had a great time working on West Wing, but you're right. It's, it's a magnificent show, magnificent show. It holds up so well. There's I've, I've, multiple, multiple viewings. It just, it, you're still entranced and you're still, you know, gripped with every scene, every line. It, it It's just an amazing, it, what an amazing time in te television that show was. Yeah, and and again, it all comes from the top. You know, it it just you have great leads, you have great writers, and and the show got many, many, many just wonderful directors on it, mm -hmm. top directors in TV. So you know, it was I had a wonderful experience. You have a recurring role, role on the Goldbergs. How much yeah. fun is that show? It looks absolutely just hilarious. Hilarious. It's hilarious. And most of my scenes are with Wendy. Hilarious. <laughs> so the biggest part, rarely on these shows, certainly it happened with Silicon Valley when I would read a script and laugh out loud. Goldbergs, I read every script of those Goldbergs I read, I am just laughing. And if you, you know, if you're laughing on the first read through, it's probably going to work. Uh, <laughs> They just have that kind of stupid humor on that show that I'm just, you know, like The Office has stupid humor, too. You know, that just cracks me up. And I get to work with Wendy, who's one of the great uh, comedians ever, you know. And and again, she's generous. She's sweet. She's kind to everybody. And we just have a ball on that show. We We just have a blast. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
the only negative about the Goldbergs, it is one of those shows. <laughs> and I talked to Adam Goldberg about this. I said, why is it that we get our scripts so late? And he says, well, Stephen, kind of the way it works is Goldbergs was the only show that for a long time was doing 26 episodes. They had cut every, you know, most of the shows had cut everything down to 18 and then they cut it down to 15. And some of them were like 12 episodes for the season. And he says, so we start out writing, we give it, get, you know, half the shows done before you start filming. But then <laughs> you're filming a show every week. We're not that fast writing the rest of the 26, the rest, <laughs> the 13 episodes. So eventually we get caught near the end, which is always near the graduation show, because as principal there, I'm ahead of the graduation show. And so I remember one of the nuttiest experiences on the Goldbergs because I'm a recurring character. So right. they tell me each time I'm working on an episode, oh, you're working this week or whatever. I got a call at six in the morning, a phone call at six in the morning. When do you get a phone call at six in the morning? I don't even think my parents ever called me that. It was <laughs> like the guys on the Goldberg said, we made a mistake, Stephen, you're in the episode, you shoot today, you shoot all day. Uh, when can you get to the studio? I said, well, I just woke up. I mean, I'll take a shower, I'll eat a bagel and, you know, it'll take me, you know, I could get there at 640. Great. Just get here before seven. I go, well, what about the script? We'll email it to you. I said, well, I don't have time to read it. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. And uh, I remember they were saying like, well, what we'll do is we'll shoot over your shoulder for the first half of the day and you can have the script in front of you. And so you could be kind of looking and reading it and memorizing it as you're performing it. And we'll pick up people in the audience. And then after lunch, you would have learned your lines and we'd shoot on you face. I'm going like, what planet are these people living on? <laughs> so I had to resort to the trick that Marlon Brando supposedly used is I remember I was talking to Jeff Garland. I was doing a scene with Jeff. And so I taped a, a card over his face with my lines written on it like this, just stuck with tape lines go. So Mr. Goldberg, you know, I, I find, you know, your son is so, and I had all my speech written on the line because they're shooting over Jeff's shoulder and they wouldn't see the, paper over his face. So mm -hmm. I had to resort to that kind of stuff to get through that. But working on the Goldbergs, again, wonderful directors, wonderful directors. Oh, so good. Wonderful writers, amazing and creative. And of course, with Wendy, you know, at the head of that show, it's just delightful. Mm. Where did the inspiration come for Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party? Well, it came from catastrophe, I guess. The the uh, I uh I I began writing every every I have all these movie stories. And what I would do is when we would all get drunk, uh, a friend of mine Robert Brinkman who's a DP would come over and I would regale people with various movie stories and he says, "You know, we're going to do a movie just with you rattling off these 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 stories so i think we shot it in about three days and i had no script and it was just me like 
ad-libbing these stories. And beforehand, we had a general theme of like, I'll do stories about being on set when I'm barbecuing these sausages. I'll have stories about uh, being in theater, theater stories. And so I had like in my head tabs and Robert just said like, just say whatever stories you want because we'll cut it all down later. So I remember I saw the first version of Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party had every story in it. it was four hours and 15 minutes long. And I remember I said to Robert, this is the greatest movie I've ever seen. <laughs> this is highly entertaining. And Robert says, no, Stephen, we're cutting it down. <laughs> so he cut it down to 90 minutes or something like that. And it, it, you know, and I, you know, I lost some of my favorite stories, but you know, when you do, it was great. I think we, one of the premieres was at South by Southwest and to hear that big audience just with rolling laughter at all of these various theater and movie stories, it was wonderful. It, it, it just was a wonder that it ever got made. Which leads us into the Tobolowsky files. Yes. Uh, how much fun was it to do those? It's, it's magnificent. The it, it's, it's important in terms of my life. It's hard to believe that one of my legacies is going to be the, these Tobo files. So because I had done this movie and, and Annie and I were into riding horses at the time. So I ended up on the third time we went to Iceland to ride horses. We were riding around an active volcano and uh, we were hit by a big windstorm and my horse was lifted off the ground we were carried a few feet in the air and then dropped onto the earth. Horse took off and threw me onto a hardened lava flow and apparently broke my neck in five places. Uh, doctors later said I had a fatal injury, which obviously I did not. Because being a writer, I know fatal has a meaning. <laughs> means you're dead. So, but I thought, what if what the doctor said was true? And so, a la Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party, I started writing stories for my two boys. What are the stories I want them to know about me, their dad, if he hadn't died on the mountain? And so, I wrote stories about Lenora, our maid, buying our house. I wrote stories about growing up with bullies in Oak Cliff who put a pitchfork through my foot. Uh, catching snakes or whatever. I, I wrote falling in love with Al Snell Allen when I was eight, uh, being on Broadway, being nominated for a Tony Award, being in Groundhog Day. So I mixed up all these like showbiz stories with life stories. Uh, and David Chen was a student at that time at Harvard. And he said, you know, I'll, let's do these and I'll put them on the internet. And he did. And I rem he wanted to do mainly movie stories. So the first three podcasts are basically what I did in this movie, and what stories happened on the set in that movie. But when it was time to write the fourth story, my mother had a heart attack in Dallas. And I went back to Dallas and I was with my mother the last 24 hours of her life. And I wrote that story, The Alchemist, 
it's the fourth podcast. And I called David up and I said, this is not a movie podcast. There's no mention of movies, but I had to write this story. So we recorded that. And David, at the end of it, said, from now on, we're not a movie podcast. From now on, we're whatever you want to write podcast. And that story, The Alchemist, went all over the world. It made the podcast. It got picked up by NPR radio stations, PRI radio stations. We played in Boston and Chicago and I know in Louisville and Florida and Houston and Dallas, people would have Tobo parties at mm -hmm. night because on the radio stations, the MP, NPR stations, they would a, a lot of times play play it at like 11 o'clock at night or midnight. They'd have a Tobolowski file story because they were like an hour long. And so I got this fan club of people who listened to these stories and it went around the world. Now I get people from every country writing me all the time. And uh, I'm writing, a, we have 99 stories now. So they're 99 hours. And David and I have done it for free. You know, there's no paywall. Anybody can listen to it at uh, tobofiles.com. You just go to tobofiles.com and it's there waiting for you. And people usually listen to them at night go to sleep or long distance car rides. But I get so many emails still of people. And I realize it's, it's, it's a unique thing that uh, someone in their life has written this diary, this expansive diary in their life. And they usually capture horrific moments mm. being held hostage at gunpoint, my broken neck on the mountain, all sorts of things. Plus stories like Groundhog Day, mm. wonderful stuff. So that's what that is. Like I said, you mentioned earlier, the playing piano. Tell us about your time in the band, the cast of thousands and any memories of, I guess I didn't know this, Stevie Ray Vaughan. That's impressive. Yeah, Stevie Ray was our uh, lead guitarist when we recorded two songs. So cast of thousands was three of us, uh, Bobby Foreman, Jim Rigby, and myself. Uh, Bobby Foreman was the only person with talent in the group, and he was really good. He, he's one of those guys who had a great singing voice and could play any instrument. He ended up in the new Christie Minstrels for a while. But we did this in high school, in college, and then we got an opportunity to record two of our songs on a Dallas album of Dallas local bands. And so we asked, Bobby asked Stevie Vaughn, who was 14-year-old kid in our neighborhood, if he would play. He was legendary. He and his brother, you know, Jimmy, were legendary guitar players in Oak Cliff, where I grew up, you know. And so Stevie, yeah, sure, I'll do it. It turned out to be the first studio recording of Stevie Ray Vaughan. But Jen, Stevie didn't play with us on gigs. He yeah. had bigger fish to fry. But right. he played for us on the record. And Bobby, Jim, and I played, let's see, the Mormon Church. <laughs> <laughs> we played Ginger Martin's party. You know, we, we, you know, we played different places like that. At school, some we played for an assembly. We were not that good, but uh, <laughs> that was cast of thousands. That's awesome. Um, I always like to ask one last question. That's kind of fun before we talk about like you know giving projects you're working on. I know you're super super busy. Do you have anything you do for fun? Like, are there any shows you like watching, or you, any music that you're listening to? I. I play the piano for fun. Hmm. 
I play the piano for fun and I practice whenever I can. Uh, shows lately, I found out, you know, the one thing you do when you do television is you don't watch television. <laughs> so I like to watch real things. I like to watch sports like golf. I watch the NBA. I watch NFL. I like football. Sports are real. So I like to watch something that's real and not scripted. You know, in, in terms of scripted shows, we love Queen's Gambit. Oh, my God, we love that. You, you know, but I don't have that much time to devote to watching a TV series. I need something I can dip in and out of. Fair enough. So what does the future hold for you right now? Are there any projects that you want to tell us you're working on? Well, uh, right now I'm starting a new Chris Pine movie called Pool Man. Mm-hmm. And uh, I play like the head of the city council and uh, uh, Los Angeles City Council. And it's a lovely, lovely script. Very funny, very moving. Chris wrote it. He's going to direct it, star in it. It's very unexpected. And it's kind of like, I'd like to say like early Altman, kind of, mm-hmm. kind of out there kind of not what you would expect and uh you don't get those kind of movies anymore you you know in in a way what chris we were talking about it the other day he said he sees it in a way like a little bit like being there and i see that Mm -hmm. in that everyone who comes in contact with his character and his character is not normal anyone who comes in contact with his character is challenged and quite often they end up being a, their better selves for the challenge, just like him being there. But it's it's a delightful, delightful script. So I hope it all turns out well. Awesome. Uh, as we begin to wrap up this interview, what is the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? I think uh, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. So I'm at Tobolowski and Facebook. I'm Stephen Tobolowski on Facebook. You know, if you have any questions i i have a business email i give people and i'll end up seeing it if you just write to my name steven tobolowski at gmail.com if you have any showbiz questions or anything like that you you can write me there certainly it's if you're interested see my my live shows uh the uh primary instinct that's a dvd that we shot a live show in seattle Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party was pretty much live. There was no <laughs> script, no nothing. It was amazing. Uh, and uh, the podcast, which is, you know, scripted. You know, I don't wing it. I write the stories and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite them and then record them with David. And so so the podcast is quite enjoyable. So I end my interviews with my absolute favorite question. And the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you want to say to the people of Earth? I'd want to say, cherish your catastrophes. Because so many good things come from catastrophe. If we just have the patience to get through the pain of it all, stick with it, and there's beauty on the other side. Growth usually doesn't come from being happy. And we're, we're in a miserable situation now, a scary time for planet Earth, a scary time for everybody. Stick with it and never let a catastrophe go by. 
without realizing something beautiful could come from it. Stephen, thanks ever so much for taking the time to do this. I know how incredibly busy you are. Uh, this is You've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much. You got it. Thank you, Derek. And just like that, Duval Nation, we come to the end of episode 123. I want to thank Stephen for taking the time to come on the show. What an incredible man. And I am so humble that he chose to speak with me. I am forever grateful, and I wish him nothing but the best for his future. Tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us. We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tea Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there, and we have everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. I recently went back through the Tea Public archive, and I added over 30 new t-shirts on there. So if you've ever wanted to own a t-shirt that I myself possess, that shirt being Beavis and Butthead sitting next to Wayne and Garth, then go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, go on the banner on the left that says Merch, click that, and you'll be taken to our store on TeePublic. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at The Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, don't be like Phil Connors. Make sure you buy your whole life term Uniflex Fire Theft Auto Dental Health with the optional death and dismemberment plan from a reputable insurance agent. No star, God bless, and see you next time. Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.